Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Laidback Luke to the podcast. Hello, Luke. Hey, good to, good to be here. Good to have you here. Yeah. So, Luke, you have always been a DJ that's fascinated me personally because of your love of the art. You've always been vocal about the love of the art of DJing and always shared that everywhere I've seen you. And everyone who I've met who knows you has said two things about you. One, he loves the art of DJing, he loves to share the art of DJing, but two, he's got time for everyone he meets, his fans, people who want a piece of him. He never, he makes everyone feel like they're the only person in the room for that 20 seconds they get to, to share in his life. And I think that's awesome. So firstly, I just want to say thank you for, for spending this time with us today here on the podcast. It's cool to have you here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So we're in Amsterdam at the moment, which is where you're originally from, as we record this. So maybe a good place to start would be for you to tell us you know, in your upbringing, which I'm going to guess was around here, at what point did DJing and music become become a thing? At what point did you realize this whole thing existed? Yeah. Well, I'm half Filipino. I was actually born in Manila in the Philippines um, due to my dad, who's Dutch, who is from here. Um, <clears throat> he did voluntarily uh, voluntary work back in the day. And so he was stationed in... Uh, several foreign countries. We lived in Africa for a little while, for instance. Then when I was four years old, we settled out in the Netherlands. Music has always been very much a part of my family because I remember specifically being in the Netherlands, being four years old, and my mom, who always loved performing and singing, she would have these uh, parties for acquaintances. She would invite everyone over and she would perform. She would perform uh, several uh, tracks and she had everything costume change changes and we used to have a curtain in the background which said the, the Lucila show 1987 or uh, no I was four years old 1980 something and uh, my dad he used to do the background music for that he would have a little drum computer and he would, he would play the guitar or the bass he plays both with that and so I came from seeing that very much a musical family as well especially from my dad's side uh, whenever all the uncles came together there would be music there would be singing there would be instruments and later in life i found out that the the whole rest of the part of the family i don't know on my mom's side is very musical as well it sounds such like sounds like such a filipino thing what your mom used to do i guess it really does um you know in in digital dj tips we have joey lives in manila he's a filipino and what you just described like i can see him just kind of like come on tell me something interesting you know yeah. it sounds like yeah, the kind yeah, of thing fair enough. so you said that you remember being four and being in the netherlands do you remember any of the bits you said before that the kind of africa and oh yeah for sure yeah so Moving around gave you some pretty early memories then. Yeah. I, uh, I remember in Africa we had a huge mountain behind the house. And also in the garden of the house there were these two pipes 
that you couldn't go near because there were actual rattlesnakes or poisonous snakes in there. That's the stuff I remember. I guess you would. Survival instinct says, remember where the snakes are, right? I also remember those uh, Maasai people the, in Africa. You have these people that cover themselves in red clay and they have these long necks. And I remember hanging on my mom's shoulder at the, at the doctor, standing in line to, to go into the office. And one of those stood next to us. And I can clearly remember that smell of, it's almost like really old clay meets meat. Kind of, kind of smell but that that always stuck with me well they say smells are one of those things that you never forget don't yeah. they so okay so you're um a very young boy in uh in the netherlands and i'm guessing that the, the netherlands feels like home right this is you've been there's no sense of anywhere else as being home although now we'll move on to the fact that you live in the states now That's but right. this is this is where you're from right you feel yeah. dutch yeah so being brought up in europe being brought up in Northern Europe. It's the heart of electronic music. It has been since those times. So when did it first come onto your radar? Coincidentally, yes. Well, it was a slow progression. I actually remember uh, rave music coming from, uh, from the UK. And one of my first encounters with rave music was uh, through listening uh, through, uh, to The Prodigy. And uh, there was this uh, school dance, which which I, for some reason, I got to host the music on that. So I, I brought a, a tape deck. My dad had a little mixer and I had a, what was it? Maybe maybe a, a vinyl, a little vinyl player. So without me knowing, I was curating the music. I w- it was actually sort of a DJ gig. But I just remember playing uh, The Prodigy, Everybody's in the Place, 12 times that <laughs> night. And uh, it was awesome. That was really just my first encounter of being able to to play the music and, that I love. And your age was? 12. 12. 12 at the time. Okay. So um, when was the next time it happened? Or was it kind of like I'm hooked? I'm, I want to do every every party I can find from this no, moment on. No. So from there, that was just a, a one-off encounter. And from there on, uh, fast forward, I was 15 years old. Uh, house music quote-unquote, broke through in the Netherlands. Um, there were these big compilations coming out, the Turn Up the Bass compilations, uh, House Party compilations, were, uh, they were called. I just remember doing a paper route at the age of 15, having that music on as a sort of like, a, you know, giving me energy to go through these chores. Um, <clears throat> this was the same year that I found out that a friend of mine who had an Amiga computer. He showed me my favorite track at that time. It was um, Pump Up the Jam by Technotronic. And he had it running on his Amiga tracker. But he showed me that he could mute the beats or he could take out the, the chords. And so I, I said, hang on a second. This was 1992. I said, so you're able to make music on a computer? And I was amazed because I was always that one in the family that people actually made fun of. My brother is an amazing drummer. He is a, a, a yeah, he can play the guitar and the piano, my dad as well. I can play a little bit, but not as good as them. <clears throat> so I always got laughed at, really. So when I found out that you could make music with a computer, I was like, so, wait, so I can program all this stuff that's in my head? And it was right there and then that I knew that I wanted to stick a lot of time into learning how to produce and, and make tracks using the computer. So I guess that this wasn't what you were at that point thinking you were destined 
to do, right? You're at school, you've got college coming up, your parents are thinking, oh, little Luke's going to go into this or that. What yeah. was the plan before music kind of reared and took over everything? Oh, before music, my, my first talent in life is drawing, actually. And I always wanted to be a comic, comic book uh, illustrator. Always fascinated by superheroes and that sort of thing. So it was kind of like going there. Uh, then after, after middle school, I, I set out to become a graphic designer, for instance. But at that moment, when I was 15 years old, then it didn't stop. It was actually, so I was doing some graffiti back then as well. Got caught. And because I got caught, I was like, okay, so I'm not going to do this graffiti anymore. I'm going to focus on music more. Um, but I, I started to make music on anything I could get my hands on. Anything that just had a little, a little sequencer. Uh, or a key. I remember having a, a borrowing a, a keyboard from someone that had a little sequencer recorder in there. And I thought, you know what? If I start layering beats and layering melodies playing in a bass line, I could essentially make my own track. So I started playing the beats for about three minutes of a track, track of mine. And then for three minutes, I would play some melodies over there and then making my own tracks uh, that way. And this was, you were still 15, 16. So yeah. way before any thoughts of, well, doing anything as an adult because you're still a kid. Well, so I, I was actually kind of kind of early with that. There was this one particular summer vacation. I was either 16 or 17. And um, my dad had a, a co-worker and he had this big Korg M1 synthesizer. And he said, he, he told me that. And he was like, are you, are you interested in borrowing that for the summer? And I'm like, well, if it's a professional synthesizer, maybe I can finally sound professional. So I, I was already syncing my music through, through the PC, hooked it up on the MIDI, ran through a couple of presets, and I found the Robin S organ in there. And I was like, man, this is the Robin S organ. It's here. And that summer, I made about 12 demos having that same organ sound in there. I remember my dad bashing into my room at a certain point because I didn't leave my room the whole summer vacation. I was just making music. And he said, Luke, I'm worried you're not getting out. Uh, and I'm like, Dad, I'm taking this really seriously. Oh, what are you doing? And he's like, you got to find a real job. And from all these kids that are wanting to make music, what makes you think you can ever make your money with making music? And I got real angry and I said, you know what? You watch me. I'll prove you wrong. And it was there and then I set out to, to reach the top, really. So... Powerful story. So at this point, you uh, did he let you keep the synthesizer past summer, or did he did he get it back? Uh, no, uh, yeah, I had to give it back, okay. which I was very sad about. Very. <laughs> so very what sad. happened to these tracks? Did, did did you get any interest? Did people pick them up? Did you start finding other people like you? Well, you know, how did you progress? Now you're deadly serious. Yeah. Now that you've got something to prove, that's right. What, what happened? So now I had a had a demo tape, about twelve demos with professional sounding sounds on there. And there was this one instance where Dobra from Ski and Dobra, who is one half of Chocolate Puma, I found out that he used to be at my, he used to go to the same high school as I was. Uh, he graduated four years prior than me, but there was the end of the school year ball and he was DJing. He was already a famous DJ. He broke through with his uh, tracks, tracks with As the Good Men. 
So we have this famous DJ coming to our school and I'm, I'm having a demo tape ready. I'm like, I'm not, screw it, I'm just going to give it to him. So there I was, barely 17 years old, coming up to him while the, the school play was. And I'm like, hey, I'm Luke. I'm from this school too. I make music too. Here's my demo. He listened to my demo. Super nervous. Scariest thing I've ever done. He was very kind. He accepted my demo. And so, hey, that's great. He has my music now. And then nothing happened. And I waited for a few months and through, because I lived in a, in a small village, through a couple of acquaintances, I found out his home phone number. Actually, it was his mom's home phone number because he was still, he was young as well. He was still living at his mom's. And I, uh, I, I rang, rang the number. I uh, got his mom on the phone. I said, well, I'm, I'm Luke. Uh, I gave Gaston a, a demo tape two months ago. Did he listen to it? And uh, his mom was very kind as well. She said, you know what? I don't know. Let me ask him and, uh, <clears throat> and we'll see. So wait for, wait for two weeks. No, no response. Wait, uh, I waited for two weeks more. And uh, so I phone, rang his mom again. I was like, so uh, did he listen to it? And his mom was like, oh, yeah. So I, I did ask him. Uh, he didn't get to it yet. Uh, but let me get back to you. <laughs> Waited for two more weeks. I got very antsy then. I uh, I rang, rang the number again. I said, listen, ma'am, uh, this is the last time I'm just going to pester you. Uh, I just want some feedback, really. I just want to learn. Uh, maybe, you know, I did something wrong in them. I just want to progress, you know. This is the last time I'm calling. If I don't hear from you, then that's it. And sure enough, two days later, he rang, he rang me back and he's like, man, I'm so sorry. I was busy doing shows, flying internationally, whatever. I listened to it. And although I'm not completely convinced, because it sounds very much like beginner demos, I hear a talent in you. And you know what? Maybe you can come over to my house uh, next week at night. We'll sit. We'll sit down. And I'll give you some proper feedback. So he did that. And we started doing that on a, on a regularly. It was super kind. Uh, and every time we had these listening sessions, he would give me examples of tracks that sounded great and which direction I needed to go to, how to EQ better, how to program better. And throughout good one and a half year of getting feedback from him, um, my, my musical producer skills improved massively up to a point where he actually he had he cleared out half of his studio had all this gear left that was doing nothing sitting it and they just brought it out to my bedroom at a certain point so all of a sudden i had had this massive amount of gear i remember going to uh, to school with all these manuals just reading through them but all of a sudden i could up my my uh, my production sound and make professional sounding tracks. And only a few months after that, I got my first record deal through him. Wow, so is it something about the Netherlands that musicians find each other and support each other in electronic music? Because it seems to be for a small country, punching way above its station with the number of influential people and producers and DJs that have come out of here. Is there something in the water here that just makes this, this more possible you know what's interesting there's two things about uh dutch people 
They are number one, they are very friend, friendly, but number two, they are very honest, brutally honest. Um, what I love about us Dutch DJs and the Dutch scene in general is that we all interact as if we're friends. We're not competition. If you would call any Dutch DJ out through the door here right now, he would never say like, ah, oh, I hate Luke, I'm not going to talk to him. There's never anything like that. It's always very friendly and we're, we're a close little clique and it has always been that way. And sharing knowledge as well, hanging out with each other, um, I think that has been one of the most powerful things. And, and, and so if you make a track and it sucks, <laughs> they're going to tell you, they're going to tell you and you can improve. Well, talking about sharing knowledge, it's something that I started off by, by saying that you are passionate about, about teaching and about sharing and about being, being there for people. And you have over the years through your, well, through a forum that you had for a long, long, long time. And you still, you still do. Um, you've kind of had a lot of DJs informally come through your doors who've gone on to great things. I mean, name some of the people who you've met in forums who've gone on to be superstars. Yeah, there's many. There's many. Steve Angelo, Nicky Romero, Bingo Players, Dairo, Lupras, GTA, Avicii, Afrojack. And there's so so many more. There's so this, is, more. this is yeah. part of what we were saying, isn't it? Yeah. The, um, but you were at the heart of this. So tell me how you got into, you know, informally coaching and teaching and hanging out with these guys because you've made you you've made it start. I do have to say that at a certain point, I made myself a promise. So it has to do with Gaston treating me the way he did, and my own urge for this information or feedback. I promised myself that if I would ever make it, I would always be open to help anyone approaching me. So at a certain point, we had my brand new website up and there was this guest book. On the guest book, people could ask me questions and I was monitoring the guest book. And at a certain point, producer questions came in. I was like, oh, this is fun. I can help those people out. I know the answer. This kind of spread like wildfire in the in the Dutch talent uh, pool and at a certain point the guest book became that much of a of a thread you couldn't even read through it anymore and so that's when we hooked up the, the my forum onto my website and that's when everything really started to take off where we had international kids jumping in uh, mind you by 2001 i only literally had my uh following in the netherlands so there were just a lot of Dutch producers coming on. But as soon as international people got word of that, I, I had uh, people from all over the world asking me for advice. So people know you as a DJ. People do know you as a producer as well. But you, you've always seen yourself very much as a producer first, right? The DJing almost a tack on, the DJing almost a, a thing that came through being a producer. And yet you are hugely passionate about DJing, you're hugely passionate about how it should be done, and a little bit despairing sometimes about how it is being done by, by fellow producers. So where did the passion for DJing start? Was it all the way back at the beginning when you played that first kind of curated DJ set, or when did DJing start showing its face in your, in your life? DJing uh, got in, into my system after about five years of being a producer, four years. I remember my uh, my girlfriend back then um, buying a set for her to start DJing with. 
two decks, two belt drives. Uh, what was the sound lab? Two oh, sound. The good old sound lab. Good yeah. old sound lab. She had a little Newmark mixer, two channel mixer, with that, and she gave it one go, literally one go. Had all the setup set up. One go. The first mix, she failed. She threw her, her headphones in the corner of the room and said, I am never going to be able to do this. And I stood there looking at those decks. I, this was in my little producer area as well. Like a week gone by and I just looked at it thinking, you know what? This might actually help my producing because I have no clue how long the beats need to be for DJs to, to mix in well. Uh, I don't know how, you know, what the... what what the needs are for a DJ. You know what? I'm just going to find out. I'm just going to start mixing. And for me, mixing was super easy. I got it instantly where, um, you know, the amount of bars are similar as in production. So mixing in, mixing out, BPM. And it was super easy and it got so addicting. And I'm I'm that guy. So if I get a new piece of gear or a new thing I dive in, I want to go all the way into it. I want to get to know everything about it she must have loved you well that's why she's my ex now <laughs> look at him how dare he yeah so no actually and this is a funny story throughout those years of me learning how to dj we um because her and i were very much fan of going out and going dancing dancing listening to our favorite djs so i would have mixtapes on which i recorded from radio or whatever of our favorite DJs. So sometimes I would slip my mixtape in there and whenever she heard a screw up, she would say, oh, this is done by you, probably. <laughs> For years she did that and this fueled me up to get my mixing that straight. Also, when out. she heard a screw up on anyone's mix. It was so just... at a certain point I was out of the screw ups and she couldn't recognize the difference. Ah, anymore. okay. So another example of you being told by someone that you either can't do this or shouldn't do this or won't manage this and you thought, no, you watch me. I'm going to prove it otherwise. So your DJing began not playing anything like the music you're playing now. It actually began as a techno DJ. Well, there's a little bit of a curve there because uh, formerly the music I started to produce and make was either kind of like Prodigy or more like MK. So I, I always uh, give MK the recognition of being one of my first, absolute first examples. But a lot of my early... 90s type of house music sounded like MK. I would buy records by Kerry Chandler, uh, DJ Sneak. So I was more into that housey garagey type of vibe. But then I got obsessed by energy, energy in beats, energy on the dance floor, where I was trying to find out where that properly sits and how I could run with that in my sets and in my productions. And by going heavier and heavier and grabbing that energy and still trying to keep it housey, I ended up being a techno DJ. So the thing with techno is it's not just the type of music, it's the type of mixing. And now if you, if a DJ who knows about DJing watches you DJing, they're going to think, hang on a second, Luke DJ is very much in the style of a techno DJ, but the music's different. So back then, when you kind of thought, this is the kind of DJing I want to do, where were your influences? Who was it that showed you how to DJ techno? Where was your first break? Where did you start to learn about that scene? Well, interestingly enough, a lot of people, when they see me DJ and they have no clue about me, they think my roots are in hip-hop. Ah, okay. And hip-hop DJing. 
and which they're not. They're, they're purely from, from techno. And I just remember uh, going to this festival in the Netherlands, Dance Valley Festival, and Carl Cox by then had already put some of my tracks on his mix compilations. And I was finally going to see him live. He was up on stage. He had three decks going, three vinyl decks. And all of a sudden, he, he's grabbing a, a, a vocal chop and he's scratching it on the upbeat. And I didn't, I had no clue what was going on. And I thought, wow, this is another level of, of DJing that, that I want to I wanna get to as well. So I started listening to people like uh, Jeff Mills and Dave Clark. Uh, Jeff Mills, who was a, a wonder on the three decks as well. And Dave Clark, who was an old uh, DMC champion. And so these type of influence marked my techno mixing as well. We, we had uh, Frankie Bones from New York, which I somehow uh, managed to get a, a CD, a mix CD from overseas. And he was doubling up techno tracks and doing all these. Well, now I know there's, these are hip hop tricks, but back then I had no clue. I thought these were techno tricks. And so, yeah, this has always been very much a staple of, of what I wanted to become as well. So your first techno gigs in techno clubs, your productions are starting to do well. Yeah. Carl Cox has got them on his, yeah. his, his um, releases and so on. So you're starting to get a name for yourself at this point. But I'm guessing not really playing outside of the Netherlands at this point. Where did you get your first break? Well, actually... As a DJ. Yeah, actually, I, I had zero shows in the Netherlands. And my first break was in the UK. My first ever, inter my first ever international gig was my first ever... Paid oh, gig okay. as well. Okay. Yeah. So this was in, in Reading in the UK, uh, Checkpoint Charlie. Shout out to, to the guys there for booking me. They indeed saw my name, uh, my name on their Carl Cox compilation. They heard I DJed as well. I was very honest with them. I was like, well, I've only been DJing for about eight months now. And they were like, great, we'll book you for the club. Come over to play. And so uh, they asked me on October... And so by January, I had been DJing for a year. Yeah, a bit, a bit longer. <laughs> a, bit, a little bit longer, but I just remember uh, walking up in that club, seeing the crowd in front of me, and uh, I, got, I got so nervous. It was terrible. I was terrified going on the decks. And um, yeah, trying to put my first needle on the record was absolutely horrendous. Uh, shaking hands and sweaty, sweaty armpits. But I managed. The mixes were extremely long because I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable behind the decks still. And yeah, so that's where the, the proper learning curve started of me wanting to do better, better than that. And how long was this kind of stage of your career when your, your sound is techno yeah. um, and your music you're making is techno? How long did that last for? And kind of what, what, at what point did that change? Well... I, uh, I held on to techno for a, for a good couple of years. Actually, I had my breakthrough in the Netherlands about three years after, 1999, at Awakenings Festival. I got the opportunity to, to close off the night. I think I was playing after Umek, even, who was coming up back then as well. I had the, slot, the 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. slot of the night or in the morning. That's a hardcore slot. To... It, it was crazy, but it was that crazy. And I was never that much of a party. I, I literally had a good night of sleep, had breakfast, brushed my teeth, and then went on to my show. 
Um, because as a visitor, I had uh, visited this party a lot. I knew exactly what was needed on the dance floor. And so I, I put all my uh, experience in there, played an incredible set. Mind you, I only knew this because people were literally climbing, trying to climb up the DJ booth to find out my name. Wow. And um, this really is a this really is a turning point. Yeah. And so after that, I got signed to a booking agent out here in the Netherlands, and and I could could do a ton of shows here, being a techno DJ. I had quite a successful international techno careers as well being signed by uh, Billy Nasty's booking agency uh, being backed up by by people like Dave Angel and and still by Carl Cox as well but at a certain point I couldn't produce techno anymore uh, the thing is if it was anything other than sounding like a, a washing machine in a loop trying to layer some vocals on there or some chord progressions it wasn't techno anymore in my ears so I got stuck literally stuck in a loop and at a certain point I, I wanted to give up making music I wanted to give up DJing and I said to myself I need to break out of this mold and from here on I choose music I'm gonna make whatever I want and coming from a musical family I always had the urge I wrote lyrics as a kid for instance um, I knew about chord progressions and I wanted to do more than just make loops so I broke with that completely kind of restarted my career and got more into like the, the Daft Punk and Electro Clash corner of the begin 2000s. So you're making a living from DJing at this point. There's no day job, there's no alternative income source. That must have been quite a risk for you to yeah. say, you know what, I'm going to press the reset button at this point. Absolutely. And um, I, get, I got real lucky at a certain point but it could, because it was only months until I started making that new type of music that uh, Virgin Records in the Netherlands uh, heard a bunch of the, those things and, and they were very interested in signing me. And all of a sudden I, uh, I find myself making uh, video clips and bringing out an album with Virgin over here and crossing over in the mainstream and, and doing all these shows uh, for people that the thing with me is, I, I try in my techno career, I tried playing a couple of mainstream tracks or poppy things, doing live mashups with vinyl for a techno crowd. They weren't, they weren't having it. And playing before a mainstream crowd and playing a few techno tracks, they were absolutely fine with that. Mm. So I, I really enjoyed that freedom. And uh, I never set out to, to make a lot of money with this, purely just because I wanted to have that creative freedom. But... All of, all of a sudden, everything worked out for me in the Netherlands. Mind you, because of this, I lost my international career for a moment. Okay, so you regained your international career quite spectacularly in the years to follow that. Uh, and I guess some people might have only first come across you at that point when there was the whole kind of second explosion of dance music um, when the United States finally got it big time. And you've kind of ridden that wave. And I think... Um, a lot of people will be very aware of the career you've had alongside the big names in the EDM scene. But as a kid from the Netherlands who's got his personal life going on as well, you know, what was going on with your, with your life away from DJing at this point? I was uh, always very much focused on my career, uh, very much put my career first. Uh, I had this relationship with uh, 
with the girl that bought the turntables from from high school on. We were high school sweethearts. So at a quite an early age, we started to think about kids. Uh, this must have been almost <clears throat> 10 years in our, into our relationship where, where we said, you know, we, we need to have some kids now. So uh, my, my first son uh, got born when I was 24. And my second son uh, when I was 27. But all in the meantime, I was really focused on showing everyone like my dad or my family that I, I was going to be successful. And one of the reasons I was so obsessed with the DJ skills as well as was I, I wanted to be one of the best DJs in the world. And uh, I went hard for that, putting family on second place. And so this resulted in uh, a heavy argument of me and my wife growing apart. And at a certain point, I came back from certain travels. I was getting real successful by then as well. Broke through in America. And uh, at a certain point, she gave me an ultimatum. It's either, it's either me or the music. And if it's going to be me, she said, you need to have an office job. And I said, well, if I'm going to get, get an office job right now, I'll, I'll guarantee you I'll probably kill myself in three months. This is what I love doing. So I chose for the career. So got got out of that marriage and, uh, and I was full on into, into DJ mode after that. And mind you, I do have sympathy for my, um, for my ex-wife. I speak her on, uh, to her on a daily but she never chose for this guy that's successful. Mm. She was actually with me when I was a broke teenager. And she actually lended me the money to buy my first studio equipment because I was that broke. And she had savings. Um, so all this time, I, I, I told her, I'm sorry I'm not here. I'm sorry I'm investing my time into this forum right now. I was on the forum for one and a half hour every single night instead of the next uh, to her on the couch um, I'm sorry I'm investing all this time but but you wait I will become successful and we will have enough money to support my family and I am gonna do this so when when big success finally hit she gave me that ultimatum and I just moved along like a steam train still it must have all been going very quickly right at this point you haven't really got much time to think anyway at this point the gigs are coming in, the money's coming in, the productions are going out. Your life is a roller coaster. Yeah. If you'd have had more time to think about what was going on, do you think it might have eaten you, eaten you up a little bit more? But it, there was no time for thinking. It was just no. like forward, forward, forward. And the thing is, at a certain point, I started doing, a, doing 150 shows worldwide in a year. And at a certain point, I even... And these are facts, like from all the Dutch international artists, even DJs like DJ Chucky and DJ Tiesto. I was the one that did the most shows internationally in 2010. There's a little graphic about that. So I didn't have much of a life really. Mm. Uh, I was partially still drinking as well. So whenever I got back home, I would have a hangover to, for two days. It's the worst. Spend, it's, it's, it's the worst when your family think that actually that's all you're doing. Yeah. Don't see the work. Spend one it's day kind of, with the family yeah. and I'd be off again. So, I mean, this, 
you can see this from both sides, right? You Absolutely. Were, at what point did you feel like you proved what you had to prove? Well, see, and, and, and that's it. So I do want people to be very aware of this, people who are, are chasing success. The real success in chasing success is that you get a, get a bigger platform and the ability to share your experiences with each other. It's not about the money. It's not about the fame. Um, but in the meantime, you're under the impression that if you hit a certain amount of money you, you'll bring in, then you're going to be happy, right? Then everyone's going to be happy. And that's been such a smoking mirror. It's so untrue. Um, yeah, in, in the end, all this effort has, has made me able to share this experience with people to develop my DJ skills and to, and to record a course with you guys, being able to actually teach these things we mention in the course, um, giving other people that hope that they can do it, that they can start living a life or that they are able to inspire people. Um, yeah, so in my second marriage, because this, this after 2010, this, this happened, I met an American girl. Uh, we married at a certain point, but we were living lavishly because the money was there. And we spent it ridiculously as well. And um, up to a point where we're getting out of the second marriage at a certain point because we grew apart as well, which in turn has to do with me choosing the career again over the marriage. Um, yeah, which, which has currently left me without much money, really, because everything, <laughs> well, everything has been spent. So lucky that you've come to the conclusion that actually this isn't, this isn't what life's about. So it seems to me like you've had a, a roller coaster journey that's, taught, that's, that's got you to a place now that's a lot better and a lot, a lot more kind of where you, you didn't know it was the way you wanted to end up, end up but you're quite glad you did. I mean, you, you're now... Um, about to be married again, and I'm sure this is going to be this is going to be the one that that kind of carries uh, the stability forward. Um, and you've got a more balanced work life thing going on, but you're still very driven. I'm, I yeah. spend I've spent a lot of time with you recently. You're still very focused. Yeah. It's like there's nothing random. There's nothing just kind of there's no drifting going on. Um, but that focus isn't all on work right now. Is that is that correct? You've got so where's the balance come from? What's the what's the solution to to this kind of drive to just be working all the time yeah no i still have it though and i still catch myself and uh last year only with the passing of avici and then hardwell going into his uh how do you say that he's not currently on pause right um just made me realize man why why am i running running so hard and running so fast all this time and uh, soon enough after two, two months after that after hardwell's announcement I, I had a, one of my uh, big anxiety attacks as well. And mind you, in my career, I've had a, a, a burnout at age 21, burnout at age 31, and a burnout at age 41. So this was only got, last year. We've got, what, nine years to go? I know. <laughs> Don't do it. And Because, uh, and okay, so prior to last year, I was the guy that told the office, vacation just keep on emailing me that's fine i don't need uh, i don't don't need days off um monday through monday yeah just keep on contacting me i'm there i'm always finishing off work 
go ahead. And so up until that point, uh, and I couldn't do it anymore. I called my manager. I said, I'm going to be offline for two days. I'm going to, because I really have the feeling I can't, can't do it anymore. Nothing, really. So we spoke about that. We restructured the way I handle things, the way I need to tackle the deadlines uh, from the office. And I, I started utilizing a Sabbath day, one day off a week. And it has helped me so much, I must say. Uh, but still, I catch myself running and being that steam train. And sometimes, you know, when my fiancé is talking to me, I really need to stop myself, really need to focus on listening to what she is saying now instead of thinking, oh, I need to put that kind of a compressor on the mastering. <laughs> what, what did you say, dear? <laughs> so um, so we're, we're, we're now bang up to date. We're, we're now, you've kind of ridden the whole EDM thing. That's kind of dying off now, and that's kind of in its, in its own way settling down into something new. Where do, you, where do you see your next kind of 10 years? And of course, there's going to be nothing at all going wrong at age 51. We know that. Where's your next 10 years? How's it going to be different to the previous 10 years? What have you got? You've got your Kung Fu. Um, of course, you're a dad. You have a, a young daughter as well as your, your kind of teenage kids now. Um, where does it all fit together? What's your plan? What's your dream for the next 10 years? Uh, well, ideally, I, I have this touring schedule set up in my head that I would love to do one weekend on, one weekend off. So I can have one weekend with the family and going into this third marriage now for the for the next you know life uh, that's gonna that's gonna add up that's gonna add up for sure we're pl actually planning on more more children there as well so n this is my opportunity to finally get it right and people see me as a dedicated dad but by all means I'm not perfect all I want is to be a family guy and to have a family life. So this time around, I really need to nail it. So family is number one right now. Uh, and in terms of the career, although I keep on working hard, the motto is work work smarter. Because essentially, and, and I'm a control freak like that with my vlogs as well, but even with my tracks, I hate sending my tracks out to a mastering engineer, for instance. My vlogs, I all wanted, want to do it all myself. My social media, my Twitter, my Instagram, I want it to be me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be another learning curve, which hopefully I'll, I'll tackle smarter now. And who do you look up to who's got that right? In DJing or out of DJing? Who are, you, who are the people you're looking to now and thinking, you know what, They've, that's, that's a model, that's a role model for me. That's someone who's... You've got this balance right. Well, it's it's uh, it's none like a, there's no famous people I can I can name who no, but I mean who has it yeah. Parents or so my my parents are divorced, for instance. But for instance, my fiance's parents, Ashley's parents, they are a wonderful role model of how I want to be as an elder. I want hey, they're not know. old. <laughs> <laughs> they're not that old, but as as a couple that's been together for a long time. Um, my good friend Eric, his mom and his dad, they are old. And uh, I just remember starting dating with Ashley and seeing them. We were at, at my friend Eric's birthday party and we had a good chat. Mom and dad compliment each other while talking. At a certain point, mom steps up uh, because they're, 
they're leaving. Dad comes in with a jacket for her. And he's putting the jacket on to her. And I'm like, I want to be that. Like, how, how, how many years have you been married? 45? And you're still taking care of that woman that way instead of, you know, ah, you old hag. <laughs> you can get your jacket. I want to be that. And so, yeah, I made the, the promise to myself and, and uh, Ashley to always make effort for love like that. Well, I can't think of a better place to, to round this one off uh, than, with, uh, than with an aspiration like that. Luke, you've been characteristically honest and forthright, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on Tales from the Dance Floor.